We're walking through a, a series right now called It's All About Relationships. It's all about relationships, and we're going to be talking about some of, uh, some of the keys to amazing, incredible relationships, and we're going to specifically focus in on how that connects to the life of David for the next few weeks. But I was thinking about the Bible, and I was thinking about some of the stories in the Bible, and if you're one of those people that's like, you know, I want to be ahead, I want to know where we're going, um, you can go to Psalm 23 in your Bible, or you can actually pull out that card that I put on your chair, and you'll be right there with me. We're going to land on Psalm 23 in just a little bit. But I was thinking about relationships. And as we get going in here, I was thinking about the power of great relationships. And I was thinking about when I really got into the word of God for the first time. How old were you when you really got into the Bible for the first time? How old were you? You can, you can talk. This is interactive. Give me some numbers. High school? Good. Who else? 13, 14, 20? Some of you in your 20s? Yeah, some of you in your 20s? Anybody when you were real little? Real little, yeah, you got the stories when you were real little. Anybody didn't get any of the stories until you were past 30? Maybe a little bit later? Yeah, some of you a little bit, a little, a little bit later in life. Awesome. I was thinking about some of the amazing, what are some of your favorite stories from the Bible? Some of your favorite stories. Yeah. David and the Oh, Daniel in the lion's den, yes. Or David and Goliath, absolutely. Good ones. What else? What are some good stories? Yeah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, love that one, love that one, fiery furnace, they throw them in there, there's an extra guy in the furnace, they don't come out, they don't even smell like smoke, that's awesome, good. What else? Noah in the Ark, yeah, I love Noah in the Ark, love Noah in the Ark, I joke about that one from time to time, because we don't talk about all of the folks that died in the Noah in the Ark story very often, right? We talked about this, when you do your nursery, and you do Noah in the Ark, you never draw all the people under the water. Right? It's just the boat with the two giraffe heads hanging out. And you're like, oh, it's adorable. I love that one. That's a good one. <laughs> That's a good one. Good. Come on. What are some other stories that the Bible came alive for you? What were some of the stories? The Christmas story. Yeah, there were shepherds, right, in the field. And there was a star and a baby was born. Those are awesome. Esther. Esther yeah. Esther saves the entire nation. We don't even see the name of God once in that whole book. How awesome is that? Strategically placed. Good. Yeah. Yeah, the Red Sea, donkeys that talk, right? The, one of the first sermons I ever preached on a Sunday morning was called The Tale of Two Donkeys. And I talked about the, the donkey that talked, Balaam's donkey. And then I talked about uh, the colt that Jesus rode on and their different reactions to God. And no one thought it was as clever as I did. <laughs> I didn't get to speak again for about a year after that. Too much donkey talk didn't work out. <laughs> Good. I love the Bible. I love the stories of the Bible. I love the truth of the story of God that comes out through the word of God. And as I was diving in to this idea of relationships, I wanted to talk first about that core relationship that we have with God. And how do we know God? And how do we get near God? And how do we experience God? And so much of that is tied to God's word and how we know about God and who God is. And I was thinking about the first time God's word spoke to me. And it wasn't in a story. I was at a camp, come on now, and I had my, my kid's Bible. I talk about it every once. I'm gonna bring my kid's Bible one of these times, just preach out of it, that'd be fun. But you know, you know the one, the yellow Bible with the lamb on the front and Jesus is holding the lamb. And, uh, and you, you know, there's some pictures in there. It's pretty cute. And my mom went through and she put the tabs on of all the uh, chapters or whatever so I could find things and so I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't be embarrassed because I didn't know where anything was. Uh, it was super, super fun. But, uh, but I remember the first time 
that I walked towards the front because someone explained to me the incredible love of a father that I had never experienced in real life. And I didn't know what that was. And someone said it was available to me that God was the creator of the universe. And not just did he create the universe, he literally created me. And I wasn't a mistake. He breathed life into me. He chose me before the foundations of the earth. He had a plan for me and a purpose for me. And something in me came alive and said, if that's who God is, then I want to know God. And I walked forward and someone put hands on me and I prayed and I believed in God for the first time. And then I went back to my dorm room for, for camp and I sat on my bunk and I opened this kid's Bible that I had never really done anything with before. And I just kind of went, okay, open it up and put my finger down. Who's God? And I was in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. The first time I walked into the Bible, God said, the first thing we're going to do is calibrate you because you don't know what love is. And you can't know me until you know what love is. You're going to have to get a new, a new experience here. And the scriptures leapt up off the page. And I started finding out, see, I wasn't a church kid. I started finding out for the first time that there were a difference between some of the fables I had grown up with and some of the stories that are out of the Bible. I didn't know there was a difference. I didn't grow up in church. So I don't know the difference between Noah or Hercules I didn't know who's a, who's, a, who's a fable, who's a story. I didn't know Red Riding Hood was going to be in the Bible. I didn't know anything. Right? Humpty Dumpty in there? What is this book? I didn't know any of that. But I began to know who God was. And I began to have a, start a relationship with him. And as I did, the stories leapt off the page. And I remember what it was like to believe, to believe that David, a little shepherd boy, could take some stones and face Goliath. I began to understand what it was to believe that Noah could walk with God. And if one person walked with God, God could save the world. And there was nothing God couldn't do. I remember every time I heard anyone was sick, send me to him, I'll pray. God can do anything. Anytime I knew anyone had a need, I'll do it, I'll pray. I believe God can do anything. There was a faith and a hope because I knew God and he was in here. I could find out more about him and I could pray and things could happen. I'll never forget the first time we were at, uh, we were at camp and a girl sprang her ankle and we circled around and we prayed and she popped up and she was okay. And God did a miracle and there was nothing God couldn't do. And then I got older and I got more educated and I got more information and I learned things like the Bible was written in different languages. And I started getting more and more head knowledge and less and less faith. And I started going, okay, well, this story kind of parallels this and this. And all of a sudden, I started moving out of a proximity relationship with God and I started moving into, come on now, a head knowledge relationship of God. And pretty soon, I'll pray with you, I'll pray for you, I'll put my hands on you and believe that God can do anything, turned into, yeah, that seems like a good thing, we'll be praying. Right? 
And what was that? A wedge kind of got in my heart between my expectation of who God is and the reality of what I seem to see on a day-to-day basis. And began to drift. And I began to wonder, how does this really work? Why does it work sometimes and not other times? And all the questions begin to just raise in there. Am I the only one? All right, you guys are locking eyes with me right here, so I might be hitting a nerve. And so as I walk into this series about relationships and we start talking about this core relationship with God, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? How does that work itself out in our lives? What's different about today because I have a relationship with God? What's different? What's unique? How does my belief invade my circumstance and invade my world? How does it change things? Because there was a time when it did. There was a time when the, when the words of God leapt off the page, leapt into my heart, leapt into my life, and I put them into practice believing that God could and would do anything. And then time and distance occurred. So today I want to talk about that core relationship with God. What do core relationships require? What do closest, your closest relationships require? The first thing they require is time. All your best relationships, you put time into them, don't you? All your core relationships, all your good ones, they take time. You want a good relationship with your kids? Spend some time with them. You want that relationship to feel strained? Let some time go by. You want a good relationship with a, with a friend at work, a peer at work? Going to have to spend some time with them. Want that relationship to get strained? Let some time go by. How many of you have the same best friend that you had your senior year of high school? Some of you probably do, yeah. What's been the key to that? Time. You keep spending time with them. Those of you that don't have that same best friend from high school, how much time have you spent with them lately? Your core relationships require time. Here's the thing. The more comfortable we are with someone, the more sometimes we know about them, it becomes easy, come on now, to just let a lot of time go by and not really connect. And those relationships strain. The same thing is true with our core relationship with God. You see, when I started on this journey with him, there was nothing that filled my tank, nothing that energized me more than spending time with God. Listening, praying, trying to hear from God. That time filled my tank. But over time, it became easier and easier and easier to let that drift. And suddenly we're spending less and less time. Second core thing that's required is proximity. Proximity. It's hard to spend time with someone if you're never around them. The farther you get, the harder it is to spend time. Now here's the trap. We have developed a thing called a social network that requires no proximity. And we have trained ourselves to be in social relationships with people without ever getting into proximity with them. And those relationships don't sustain as core relationships. Now, we've talked ourselves into that. You don't understand. I text them all the time. You don't understand. I check their status every day. I like all their comments. I even throw the little heart one in there so they know that they matter to me. 
But core relationships require time and proximity. And we're the first generation that's tried to figure out how to do that without actually getting close to people. We're trying to figure out how to have core relationships without getting close to them. So here's the problem. Don't have a social relationship with God. Don't have a social media relationship with him. Here's what we do. Even us good Bible readers, we check in and we do our status update. And we click like on something. We go, oh, good one, God. You got this. But there's not proximity. There's not time. It's not personal. It's just, woo, good one. You got that right. I'll even highlight that one. If I'm reading in a digital interface, I'll even cut and paste it. So everyone else can see that I got a social networking relationship with you. You can like God on Facebook. If you haven't, what's going on? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But we're the first generation to really begin to develop that with God. You say, oh, relationships are hard. If they take time and nearness, I don't have a lot of time. And my location is dictated by a lot of things. I'm so busy. I have so many things going on. How much time do you really expect out of me, pastor? You're killing me here. Okay. I don't know about you, but when I walk into this, the Bible doesn't say, be busy and know that I am God. <laughs> right? The Bible doesn't say, why are you giggling? Because you know it says, be still and know that I am God. You want to get into proximity, slow down. Stop running. Stop chasing. You're going to have to pace your life a little different. Relationships require time and proximity. And if you don't have the time and you can't be available, you're not going to have great relationships, period. Period. You cannot be busy and know that he is God. It just doesn't work that way. So I get into the word and I start looking at the life of David and David's the only guy in the scripture who it says was a man after God's own heart. So this guy seemed to have captured this intimacy with God. What is intimacy? Intimacy, a close, familiar, and usually affectionate or loving personal relationship with another person or group. David seemed to have accomplished this intimacy with God. So how did he do it? How do we take ourselves and our busyness and our life and our pace and we move from a social media relationship with God into an intimate relationship with God? Well, we're going to walk into it through the life of King David. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about intimate relationship with God. We're going to talk about how do we have great, healthy, intimate friendships. And then we'll talk about when, uh, when it all falls apart. And how do we recover? So that's where we're going for the next couple of weeks. And if you're like, I don't want to have good relationships, then you can just skip the next three weeks and that'll be fine. But that's where we're going. And we're going to walk through the life of King David. Now, David's one of my favorite guys in the Bible because I, I just get his life. It makes sense to me what he went through. He's relatable. He swings hard. He misses often. 
But we got to walk through his life a little bit. Some of you are real familiar with David's life and, and, and some of you aren't. So we're going to walk through it a little bit and then I'm going to catch us up to this man that was able to write Psalm 23. David starts his life as, uh, as the youngest brother of seven or eight. And uh, it's pretty interesting to see he's a, uh, he's a young brother and they have a shepherding business. They're shepherds. And as the youngest brother, guess what job he gets? Hang out with the sheep. Right? Your younger brother takes all the crummiest jobs. So David is out doing his thing day after day with the sheep. He's got a couple of cool skill sets. He plays the harp. I don't know if he has good pipes, but he's good enough on the harp that eventually he gets promoted to the king's court as a musician. So he's got pretty mad skills. He's got time on his hands because he's hanging out as a shepherd. We also know he's not, uh, he's not afraid to get into it when a bear or a lion shows up. He can manage the staff. Come on now, he can bring the wood. Whack! Someone gets out of line. You got to like that. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, Samuel, who's the prophet of God, is looking for the person who's going to be the next king. Saul the king has blown it. And so God directs him over to the household of Jesse, that's David's dad, and says, hey, one of your boys is going to be king. So Jesse brings all his muscular, tough sons in. Samuel looks at him and goes, no, king's not here. You don't have any other sons? He goes, well, there's the run of the litter. He's out with the sheep. Bring that guy in. They bring him in. Samuel says, this is the one. They're like, seriously? Does he even bench? Samuel's like, uh-uh. Man looks at the outside. God looks at the heart. And Samuel anoints him as a young man, says, you're going to be the next king. Doesn't become the king right away. I don't know about you. If you're a teenager in here and someone walked up to you and said, God said, you are going to be the ruler, the next ruler. I don't know how you'd manage that information. You're going to be the next president. Everyone in here would be like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know how you'd manage that information he managed that information by going back out and going back to work he's like okay cool but the sheep are out there I gotta do my job eventually he gets promoted because he's got mad harp skills he's working for Saul in Saul's court and there's a battle going on maybe you heard about it Philistines, Goliath shows up now, I want you to check this out. I'm just taking you through his story a little bit. His brothers, because they're buff, are out fighting. He's the musician in the family. <laughs> All the musicians just smirked because you know where I'm going. While the men were out fighting, the harp player was back. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> it's because I'm jealous. I wish I had that talent and God didn't give it to me, so I have to poke at it every time. <laughs> His dad shows up and says, hey, bring your brother some sandwiches. They're out there fighting. I'm not making this up. Sandwiches. So David says, hey, maybe you didn't pay attention to when Saul was there and anointing me as king, but I'm not the sandwich bringer. No, that's not what he does. <laughs> right? He says, sure, dad. I got this. And he brings sandwiches. Now, listen, some of you just need to hear this right now. Some of you, God has a plan and a purpose for your life, a destiny that he's already unpackaged that's gonna happen, but you're in the sandwich business right now. And your faithfulness while you're in sandwich season 
is going to determine whether or not your position to receive the full blessing and benefit of God's provision in your life. But you're in sandwich season right now and it's frustrating. You're like, God, you put a word. I heard it. I knew there was a destiny. I knew there was a plan. I knew there was something that you were going to do in my life. You literally anointed me for the mission that I'm supposed to do. And this guy wants me to run sandwiches out to my brothers. Do you know how much they're going to make fun of me when I get out there and they're fighting and I got my harp over my bag and a bag of sandwiches? But his faithfulness, come on, the way he honored his father and did the job he was assigned to in the time he was assigned put him in a unique position because when he got out there, he got to see what God was doing on the battlefield and he saw Goliath and he heard the mocks and he heard the taunts and he saw the fear in the camp of his people and he said, what are we scared of, boys? God help me when there was a lion. God help me when there was a bear. You don't think God's got this knucklehead? And they're like, no, dude, chill out. Just bring the sandwiches. He's like, I can't be just a sandwich boy when the word of God has filled me with the hope of God and now I can do the will of God. So he grabs his sling, picks up five stones and walks out there and bing, takes out Goliath. Some of you don't read the whole story. Then he picks up Goliath's sword puts it on his neck, <clears throat> takes care of business. Come on now. When you take the bear down, you better make sure the bear is down. <laughs> right? So after that, people start singing songs about him. And King Saul's like, oh, I don't like this guy. He can't be in the court anymore. He can't be playing a harp and everybody's singing songs about him that are better than the songs they're singing about me. Let's send him out with the fighting guys now. Maybe something bad will happen to him, except something bad doesn't happen to him. They start winning and winning and winning and winning and winning. Pretty soon, Saul gets jealous, gets so jealous that he says, hey, come in and play the harp for me again. He's like, okay, plays the harp. And Saul's like, mm, spear, chuck. Chucks a spear at him. I'm not making this up. David's like, woo, how you doing there, Chief. Something we should talk about? And he leaves. He flees. And it says a ragtag group follows him out there of rejects and people in debt. I'm just not making this up. He gets the rejects and the people in debt. That's who he gets to come out and follow him. There's about 400 of them. And they follow him out. And they're like, all right, we can just squish Saul. Let's go back and kill him. And he's like, no, I'll never lay my hands on the Lord's anointed. Some of you, come on now, got a boss right now, a person in authority right now, someone who's over you right now, who is chucking spears at you. And you're just like, you know what? I'm going to turn the tables on this guy. I'm going to take that spear, do whatever I got it, right? But here's David's heart. God's in control. God's the one who puts people in authority. I don't know what's wrong with this crazy maniac who's chucking spears at me, but that's God's man until he's not. And so I'm gonna be faithful to what I've been entrusted with in the meantime. Some of you have been plotting the downfall of somebody instead of praying for God's provision for them. And it's undermining your opportunity to have proximity to God. Some of you are surrounded by the rejects and the indebted folks that he's been surrounded with by this moment. And you're looking around thinking, what can God do with this pool of resources? It's a net loss, this pool of resources. 
don't realize that God's cultivating some mighty men in there. And if you would just live for God in that circumstance, hearts would get changed, destinies would get changed, lives would get changed. This is a David story. I haven't even got to the psalm yet. I'm just telling you who he was. So God promotes him. Oh, in the midst of that, he makes best friends with Jonathan because that's important. We'll get there. Jonathan's the king's son, the prince, the person who is the heir incumbent, who David has been anointed to take his position, his authority, and his inheritance. Yet he makes best friends with someone who should have been a natural enemy. That's the power of a good heart and a clean heart and a right heart and a submitted heart and a heart that loves God. You can befriend someone who's positionally could have been your enemy and become an ally. I'm just saying, that's David's story. I'm not making that up. So Saul and Jonathan end up dead in battle and David gets promoted, has so much victory that he gets complacent. And in the time when the kings are out to war, he's hanging out at the castle, looking over the wall at all that he has conquered and surveilling all that he is entitled to. And he sees a young lady by the name of Bathsheba and he's like, huh, to the victor go the spoils. Down goes David for the count. Not only that, but he manipulates her husband in such a way that he ends up dying. David's family life becomes a hot mess. His children end up fighting each other. There's stories of rape and pillage just in his family. And some of his kids end up put to death by his guys. He experiences the whole gamut of that. Eventually, he wants to build a home for God, a temple. And God says, whoo, easy there, chach. A lot of blood on these hands. Appreciate the work, but you don't get to do that part. We're going to hand that off to your son. Solomon does that. And in the midst of all of that storm, he writes this psalm, Psalm 23. Now, folks argue about what time of his life he was in when he wrote this. It seems clear it's later in life because shepherds don't have too many enemies and he writes about his enemies. There seems to be a world of experience in his fingertips and this man who's seen loss, who's had to wait, who's had the highest of highs and some of the lowest of lows talks about the intimacy of his relationship with God. And we only read it at funerals. I don't know. So we're going to talk about Psalm 23. Now, here's one thing about Psalm 23 as we get into here that blows me away. It's written from the perspective of sheep. Now, that's weird to me. David is a shepherd. He's got mad skills as a shepherd. He's taken on bears and lions. He's good with the staff. He's got a sling thing that he's just like, bing, right? He's got like 40 caliber rocks, maybe 45. Just knocking people out. But he writes this from the perspective of a sheep. He takes the role of the sheep on. Shepherds are, you know, they're dirty and they're outcast, but at least they're cool. Sheep are not cool. I got to be honest with you. As I get into this Bible, more than 200 times, it refers to me as sheep. I'm not super cool with that. I'm a city boy, and so 
I have to get into like other sources to learn about sheep. And the more I learn about sheep, the less I like that time after time after time after time after time, when God looks at me, he sees sheep. Seriously, God? It's kind of a burn. As I'm researching about sheep, here's the top three things I learned about sheep. First thing, sheep are dumb. <laughs> sheep are dumb. They are. No one, no one thinks of sheep. No one trains sheep. You don't go to the circus and see train sheep. They don't do tricks. They don't jump through hoops. They don't do any cool things. What is the cool thing that they do? They grow wool. They just stay alive. That's their primary job. That's what we're hoping that they do. But sheep are dumb. I don't want to write from the perspective of sheep. I don't want to read from the perspective of sheep. Sheep are dumb. And then I have an honest moment and I look in the mirror. I'm like, you know what that guy does a lot? Dumb things. You're laughing. Because when you look in the mirror from time to time, you go, dang it. Dang it, why did I do that? I said I was going to do this and then I did this. I said, whatever I do, don't do this, right? And then what's the thing I did? Dang it. Dang it. Sheep are dumb. Second thing I learned about sheep. Sheep are dirty. They're dirty. When do sheep get baths? Yeah. And in the Bible lands, it didn't rain very much out there. Like half of the stories revolve around droughts. They're in the desert country. The sheep that God is comparing me to are smelly, dirty sheep. I would take a shower three times a day if I could. But God looks at us and he's like, you know the, the best parallel sometimes to that behavior? Sheep. Sheep are dirty. It gets on them. They get messy. They get into things. They don't have the tools to self-clean. They're not like cats, which no one likes anyways. <laughs> Woo, the room got hot right there. Let's talk about that, that, that wound I just tapped into there, right? They don't clean themselves. They don't care. They're indifferent about that. You want a clean sheep? You got to go clean it. Sheep are dirty. This is the one that makes me the angriest. Sheep are defenseless. What is the sheep's attack mode? What is their weapon? Where is their horn? Why aren't their hooves tough? Where's their thick hide? Where's their sprinting, battering ram selves? What is cool? There is no, and you know this, there are no schools out there that are the fighting sheep. No one has a fighting sheep. Nobody. Right? That's pretty awesome. <laughs> Just feel it. But nobody does it. You've been following sports your whole life. You went to school. None of you went where the fighting sheep. Even the rams get in there. But nobody calls themselves the fighting sheep. Why? Because sheep don't fight. There's no fight in them. There's no redeemable tough guy moment in a sheep. And 200 plus times... 
the scriptures tell me that God sees himself as the shepherd and he sees me as a what? Burn. Exactly. Some of you just needed to have a little reality check. Here's the cool thing. I know I'm in the image of God. Come on, we'll get to that, some of that stuff. I know that God's breathed life into me. I know that I have incredible value, but I never want to miss that God understands in our relationship, he's the shepherd, I'm the sheep. I'm the sheep. So here's David, spent a whole lifetime as a shepherd, could have written, I am a shepherd. Let me tell you about my relationship with God. No, he writes from the perspective of a sheep. And the first thing he says, verse one, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, I don't know about you. There is something incredibly powerful about the personal desire for the living God to be my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, mine. Not the Lord is a shepherd, not as the Lord is the shepherd, not as the Lord is the greatest shepherd. I'm a sheep, but I'm not just any sheep. I don't just belong to any flock. The Lord is my shepherd. <laughs> I shall not be in want. Some virgins say, I lack nothing. Wait, didn't you just say sheep are dumb, dirty, and defenseless? Obviously, there's some lack in here. David says, uh-uh, 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 because the Lord is your shepherd. You don't lack anything. You don't lack anything. Let me just say that again because you hear me, but it hasn't got past your social media click version of it. If the Lord is your shepherd, you don't lack anything. You don't. Because a sheep is completely dependent on the shepherd. So whatever the shepherd has is what you have. So if the Lord is your shepherd, what does he not have? I don't lack anything. <laughs> Some of you just need to hear that again. The Lord is your shepherd. You don't lack anything. You will not be in need. You will not be in want. Verse two. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. The beginning of verse three, he restores my soul. Now, this gets a little contentious for me. He makes me what? <laughs> he makes me lie down. Are you kidding me? I got free will. I'll do whatever I want to do. Nobody makes me anything. I make me. All right, sheep. See how that goes for you. <laughs> i just be honest. We think we don't need to lie down. We think we got this. Nothing in your life that you know of works forever without rest. Your car doesn't work without rest forever. It's got to be plugged in. Everything you have needs plugged in batteries. It needs to recharge. It needs to rest. You need rest. And when you don't rest, guess what you were built to do? Rest. You will lie down at some point. 
He'll make you. I was thinking about this. I got kids. Anyone have kids that just love to nap? Because you can just leave. I don't even want to talk to you about that. That's just wrong. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Who had the kid that did not love to nap? Yeah, all right. If you had more than one, you had at least one that didn't, right? I had one in the middle, Mason, who would not rest. He would not. He's, uh, what, how many years? How many? He's 14 months older than his sister? 15? 16. 16 months older than his sister. He did not sleep until his sister was born. For 16 months. I swear that kid did not sleep for 16 months. It was insane. And here's the thing. He just didn't want to miss anything. He was just so, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? He was so alert, so paying attention. You could not tell this kid, get this kid to rest. So you know what I had to do? I had to make him rest. I think I swaddled him for 16 months. <laughs> like a straight jacket, that kid. And then I held him. I even had a move. I called it the immobilizer. I'm like, I just have to hold him still so he'll rest. He's so... Right, he's a sheep. Just flailing. Just flailing. And we do that. I got to get my stuff done. I got to go. I got to make it happen. I got to do this. 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 I do this. And God's like, hey, you don't work well if you don't rest. So if you won't do it, come on now. Here comes the immobilizer. He makes me lie down. He makes me. Why? Because he doesn't like me? No. Because he designed me to need that rest. And we're better when we have it. Come on. You know this. We talked about this. We talked about it in the Breathing Room series. We talked about this. The world doesn't need more of you. It needs more of the best you. And the best you doesn't exist if you're not rested, if you're not recharged, if you're not refreshed. If your soul is spent and you have nothing to give, most people don't want you around anyways. What's coming out of you isn't giving life to anybody anyways. You need that rest. You need to recover. It's pretty funny. I used to think when I first got into this, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just a guy trying to understand the word of God just like you. I used to think this was all about food and drink. Right? Green pastures. I get my grub on. Still waters. Get my drink on. That's what restores my soul. No. He's about to talk about food and drink and the presence of our enemies in the next couple of verses. This isn't about that. This is about what are the things that restore your soul. It's about location. It's about time and place and circumstance that restores you, that revives you. You know there are things that restore and revive your soul. Some of you, if you could just be quiet for a little while and maybe play an instrument, you would restore. It would fill your cup. You would have your energy going. If you could just think for a while, brainstorm. If you could write for a while, whatever that place is, if you could get out in the wilderness and, and, and throw a line in the water, if you could square up a target between your sights and squeeze off a few rounds, I don't know what it is that restores your soul. But if you could do that, you know you'd be a better version of yourself. 
It's about location. And then it's about source, pouring into your life, having access to God, being near to him, waters that replenish you and restore you. The purpose of green pastures and quiet waters are for soul restoration. To make you whole again. See, in just a little while, we're going to see that we're going to go through some tough things. We know that valley of the shadow of death is coming in this passage, right? We know there's going to be hard things. And you are not going to be prepared for those difficult things if you haven't had some soul restoration going on. If you're on empty, if there's nothing in your tank, it's not going to work out for you. The picture here, I don't know if you've ever heard of a cast sheep. But a cast sheep is a sheep that's gotten on its back and can't get turned over. Right? It's on its back and he's just flailing. He's a big ball of hair and wool. And he doesn't have the right angles or leverage to kick back over. That's the visual that we get here from this passage. God's like, hey, if you aren't going through your green pastures and restoring your stole, if you're not getting by the quiet waters, if you're not resting, you're going to end up belly up, flailing. You know what happens to cast sheep? If the shepherd doesn't come find them, they just die. They die of starvation. They're not competent of getting flipped back over. And then when they get flipped back over, that's some of the most dangerous time for them. The shepherd has to massage them and get the circulation going again. A lot of times they'll have heart attacks because the blood's just moving the wrong way and they flip back over the panic and they just, and they just die. <laughs> Some of you are on a pace to just have a heart attack, to just burn out. He restores your soul. Jesus has always been in the restoration business. He's in restoring lives, restoring soul, restoring identity. And we're always been in the get fallen on our back business. <laughs> and so he partners with us. I think about Peter. After the cross, after having catastrophically in his mind failed at what God called him to do by denying him, he's out fishing again and Jesus shows up. What are you doing here? He's like, you know what I'm doing here. Just running from my embarrassing low moment. And Jesus is in the restoration business. He's like, yeah, 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 I understand you blew it, but do you love me? See, he's massaging the legs. He's getting the circulation going in the right direction again. Yeah, 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 I know you blew it. I knew you were going to blow it when I formed you. I knew everything. I had the whole picture. But let me ask you this, do you love me? He's like, yeah, you know I love you. Then what does he say? Go feed my sheep, Right? He's like, there's a bunch of other ones like you that are falling over and you're going to be my ambassador. You're going to go out there. You're going to be in the restoration business because you've experienced a restored soul. We're in the restoration business. But we can't get there. Come on now. If we won't let him lie us down, we won't let him restore our soul. Okay, I'm getting, I'm getting, I got to move faster. He guides us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He directs me. He leads me. I'm not on my own. When sheep are left on their own, bad things happen. They wander. They'll graze on the same hills. Over, Yeah, that's a cast sheep. That's the picture. 
Sheep left alone will just graze the same area over and over and over again. Eventually, they'll just eat the dirt and then they'll die. We need to be led. We need some direction. He's a shepherd who leads us to good grazing area. He directs me. He leads me. Verse 4. I'm going to move faster here. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I was thinking about this. I don't think we have this perspective right. I think we walk into tough times and we look around and like, God, seriously? Seriously? Tough time? I think sometimes the picture should be a little different. Ever been going into an argument or a fight or a conflict and you have the highest level of authority on your side? And so you know this is going to go crazy, but the guy who's with you is like the highest level of authority. So like you got the boss with you and you're going to have to go deal with something and you know it's going to happen, but you know, come on now, that the guy that's with you has the highest level of authority. Okay, let's start, just shrink it down. Maybe he's just the toughest Maybe he's the biggest, the baddest, the strongest. And you have a certain confidence because you know that you're on the team. Come on now, sports guys. You know when your team's going to go into a game and get crushed, how you feel about that. You're like, oh, there's like a Hail Mary chance, but it's probably not going to go well. There's another thing that happens when you got the number one defense and the number one offense and your quarterback's on fire and everything's going well. And you're just like, yeah, I can't wait for the next battle. Bring it on. Most of you live in this area your whole life, so that's a new experience for you. (laughs) But that happens. That happens. And we get excited because we know, come on now, that we got something here. And there's a picture that David's painting here. He's like, listen, I know we're going to go to battle. I know we're going to walk through hard things. I know I'm personally going to fight this out. But in the midst of the toughest times in my life, I also know we got the best offense, the best defense, the biggest, baddest guy is on my side. So deal with that. And my perspective changes because though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear anything. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. I was thinking about Moses I was thinking about Moses and the the things that God called him to do. And he has this burning bush moment and God's like, you're gonna be the guy I sent. And he says, that's cute, Moses. Uh, That's cute, God. But I don't speak so well. I'm not a good public speaker, so I'm not gonna be good at this thing you asked me to do. And God's like, wait a second. Who made your mouth? Do you think you made your own mouth? If I told you that you can do this and you told me you can't because you don't have a good enough mouth, you're telling me that I messed up. You didn't make your mouth. I made your mouth. So if I say you can do this, then you can do this. Ouch. Then Moses is like, well, let me at least bring Aaron because Aaron's good at talking to people and he's a good leader. God's like, fine, take Aaron. First time Moses leaves Aaron in charge, goes up on the mountain, guess what happens? Everything goes crazy. But Aaron had all the skill set. He had all the gifts. He had all the things. Moses had the heart that stayed connected to God. And when he stayed connected to God, it didn't matter the package that was sent because God was in the package. He was in the design. Some of us in here have felt like the problem is I'm a sheep. I don't have all the things I need. 
And David would say, hey, you want to know the answer to that? You recognize the shepherd is the designer. The shepherd's in control. You're not a mistake. You have everything you need. You were designed by him. And yes, you're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Yes, you're going to walk through difficult times. But you don't have to be afraid because you never have to walk through them alone. Why? Because the power's in the proximity. The promise is the proximity. When I'm not alone, when I got the big baddest guy on the planet, come on, to ever exist, who breathes and life occurs, who speaks and light occurs. Come on now, that is who I serve. When that is my shepherd, when that is who I know, and that is who I love, when I'm with that God, I don't have to worry about the circumstance the way I used to worry about the circumstance. When he tells me it's time to rest, it's time to rest. When he says, let me pour into your life because you're going to need it because on the other side of this, you're going to walk through some tough times. I can accept it because that's the shepherd. David says, you can know the shepherd. That's as much time as I got. I'm going to get through six verses. I can't do it. We'll keep walking through this. I think it's pretty good stuff. You guys having a good time? You all right?